Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to our sponsors of this episode, Lori Bedke and Creighton University. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode is Harry Paul. And Harry is an MD-PhD student who speaks, writes, and researches about disabilities in medicine. I found Harry on Twitter, actually, several months ago and have found him to be extraordinarily transparent and informative and honest. And he recently wrote a superb piece in Stat News, linked in the show notes, which discusses the topic of hidden disabilities. So he came on the show to talk about this concept of hidden disabilities and disabilities in general, the opportunity that's in front of us to deal with this topic better, to understand it better, to find some shared understanding around what these terms mean as well as the stigma associated with them and the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. We also spend some time discussing another term, ableism, and the prevalence of ableism and the impact that it has. And again, opportunities to get better, opportunities to lead that work. There's also a host of other links in the show notes that Harry has provided, so I would really encourage you to take a look at those. This was a really informative, educational, and quite frankly, motivating conversation that we had with Harry, and I think you're going to really enjoy listening to him. Please do check out the archive of Explore the Space podcast at www.explorethespaceshow.com. Over 200 episodes in there, so please take a look around. Definitely subscribe, rate, and review Explore the Space on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your shows. I'm often asked, what is the best way to help the show? Word of mouth and those ratings and reviews. So if you have a couple of seconds to spare to do that, I would really appreciate it. Definitely email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at ETS show as well. Harry was a fantastic guest to speak with. This was a critical topic. It's a great learning opportunity for me. I think will be as well for all of you. So without further ado, Harry Paul. Harry, welcome to Explore the Space podcast. I'm delighted you're here. Mark, thanks so much for having me on. I love that we have this opportunity because I say that you're here. <laughs> you're about as far away from you and I could be <laughs> in the continental United States, but we're making it happen. So that's good. The beauty of the Internet. That's right. Good. So speaking of the beauty of the Internet, this is where I found you. And this is where you, I think, found the podcast and that we kind of connected in that hashtag med Twitter environment. And one of the, the, the things that I love about it is it has taken the whole dynamic that quite honestly, when I was going through medical training, the the aspect of hierarchy, the aspect of, you know, medical student leads to intern, leads to resident, leads to attending. It's really dumped that out on its head because the fact that I'm an attending and you're a medical student really has nothing to do with anything that you and I are going to talk about. 
Yeah, I've I've been thinking about that a lot, and I and I love that you brought it up because I think the bi-directional learning is is why I kind of got into medicine, right? Like I. I would never presume to, you know, even though I'm a second year medical student, think that I know basically anything about medicine yet. And so having this space to think that, you know, there are things about about disabilities, about equity, about the patient experience that I can share and that, you know, people who I look up to as mentors can can learn from is is just incredibly cool. I love that you just brought up bi-directional learning because I would assert that at this point in our lives and the short duration of time that we've known each other, I have learned 10x more from you than you have learned from me. And this will evolve over time, and that's great. But right now, as we sit, I am coming to you with the mindset that we bring to these episodes of, look, there are opportunities for us to learn and for us to get better. And we need people who know these things and have expertise and comfort in discussing them. And that's why you are here. And I love that you are already seeing that. It's It's been, it's taken me some time to get into, but now I'm sort of leaning into it and finding finding how to do that, right? Because there's really no rule book or, or guidebook for advocacy. And and so it's its its own little journey, you know, separately from my journey to medical school and, and, and through my life. So let's start there then. If there's no guidebook for advocacy, I mean, we talk about advocacy on Explore the Space, right? This has become a passion of mine. And I would agree that there's no guidebook except chapter one is that you need to do it. You need to find what you want to advocate yeah. for and you have to do it. It does feel like for me, and this is where I have had the opportunity to learn a great deal from you, is I think that you are done with chapter one. You've identified where you want to place your advocacy energy and expertise. Is that a fair way to characterize where you are? Yeah, I I think so. I think so. I think, you know... I did not call myself disabled many years ago. You know, I had many surgeries as a child. I was in and out of the hospital. I dealt with things, you know, that came from that. Uh, but it wasn't really until I started thinking about working in medicine and then applying to medical school that I sort of recognized that this idea of, you know, probably if we went back to my application, I think I talked about like, you know, how important the conversations are, right? How important understanding, you know, patients' perspectives and, you know, all that. And I think that was sort of an abstract way of talking about what I've now come to understand is disability and the the varying levels of disability that patients and doctors and everyone experience. And then how that disability is, is a part of our, of everyone's experience of the world even if you know they themselves are not disabled, because it it really shapes is one of the things that shapes society and and physical spaces and internet spaces and so you know I've I've identified this because I think it's a word people are scared to talk about and don't know really what it means and so just having those conversations has been a a, a beautiful experience for me over the last I don't know six months to a year. 
I would submit that your characterization of most people's understanding and comfort level with the word disability, what it means, its implications and how to talk about it is at an early stage of development, shall we say, is an opportunity for improvement. I would say you're right. I would say you're absolutely right. And I will put myself right in that place, right? I'm a mid-career physician. I finished residency in 06. We didn't have this in a curriculum. We talked about things that cause disability. We Mm. talked, right? That's, that's what we did. That's what we continue to do, right? We, we learn and study disease and, and, you know, physiology, pathophysiology, all these things, long and short-term outcomes and, and acute versus chronic. Like we are steeped in that and we get super good at it, but we Mm -hmm. don't have that shared understanding when we use that term, what it means, how it can be a positive, how it can be a negative. So it feels like, again, we're, we're in that place where we're all maybe looking for understanding, but boy, that's the opportunity for improvement, I think, is just establishing that we don't really all know what we're all talking about yet, but the entities for sure are there. Yeah. And, and you bring up such a, such a pivotal point of, you know, that medicine, you know, people in medicine, doctors, et cetera, are, are around this all the time. All the time. That's the, that's the job. Our understanding, I think, is is based on the people who do understand disability or or who think they do when the word is used. Uh, uh, oftentimes, it either goes – I think it goes one of two places. I think it either goes to, okay, that means that you're a wheelchair user, right, because that's what is on the handicap logo. That's what, you know, happened after polio. You know, that's what, you know, people think a disabled person looks like. Or it goes to – Oftentimes within medicine, are you going to be on disability, meaning, you know, we're going to give you the paperwork so that you can, you know, be on disability and get paid and not work. And and in both of those things, right, not only are they reductive, but but they also don't really take into account that two people, if we could clone them, right, with the same exact condition, the same exact abilities, symptoms, et cetera, in two different environments – one can be disabled and the other not at all, right? Our socioeconomic status, the job we do, how accessible the spaces we inhabit are, all of that changes what a person experiences. And and that then leads to whether they take on the disabled identity, right? Because that's what disability is. It's an identity. The you know, it's it's different than other identities. You know, be whether it's you know, gender identity or racial identity, in that it's it's very very fluid through time. So people can be disabled one minute um, and and not in the next, or vice versa. You know, and even in different spaces, right? Like I just told you, you know, a few minutes ago, I didn't call myself disabled before. Now I I talk about you know being a disabled medical student all the time, and it's it's not that something changed for me. It's that you know I came into this and I understood this, and and where I was and what I was doing was different. Would you characterize the term, or would you agree with the way I will characterize the term? So I don't put you on the spot. The way I would characterize the term disability in quotes. It feels loaded. It feels like when you put it out there, people automatically take a posture of 
sort of a defensive readiness. There isn't a sort of, you know, you mentioned disability paperwork, right? That will engender a response. You mentioned Mm -hmm. disability placards, again, will engender a response. Mm I would characterize this as, as sort of, and again, there's a spectrum here, but it's loaded. It's a loaded term. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and those, those ideas, I don't think really help the people who we're talking about when we use those terms. And they certainly don't help the many, many disabled people who don't fall into those categories or who don't even call themselves disabled. Right. So when I, when I begin having these conversations with a lot of people, one of the first examples I like to go to is that there are very few people, if any, who call nearsightedness a disability. But that's because we have glasses, right? And so if you can afford glasses and you have access to glasses, you don't experience ill effects or barriers from that problem with your eyesight, right? If, if for, for a member of the dwarf community, if you are in spaces where everything is within reach, the fact that you're of a different height than another part of the population doesn't make that a disability because it doesn't hinder you. The way that this then changes though is because even if you're even if you're fully accommodated, but then there is stigma attached. So even if you can do everything, the people around you either think that you can't or treat you differently or have implicit or explicit bias about you, or you have those biases internalized within yourself, then you, I think you can still be disabled even if that's not in a way that you know we sh- we sh- we would have to characterize it if we handled it differently in society and so i think that comes around to this whole notion of identifying as something right if you identify as disabled you're calling attention to the the stigma the barriers the whatever that you face and saying hey this is me i'm here it's not a bad thing but i do need x because of it so it's a complex tapestry <laughs> just in hearing Absolutely. you in hearing you lay it all out right you lay these things out in parallel but they're in parallel they're in series they're intersecting they're up and down and then we have another element that I learned from you recently in this article that you wrote in Stat News around this concept of the and it's a term that you use and I, and I was struck by how frequently you use the term in the essay hidden disabilities Walk us yes. through, because when I, I again, I mean, it's it, it popped up. I, I want to say five or six times in a, in a in a relatively short essay. Unlock the term hidden disabilities for us. Yeah, I'd love to. You know, I think there's this whole category of disabilities that we used to call, and some people still call, invisible disabilities. Right, things ranging from hearing loss. You know, where you wouldn't know that someone around you has hearing loss or is deaf unless they they told you or unless, you know, you saw them using sign language or, or whatever, down to what I sort of was talking about in the piece, which is these disabilities that it's hard to, to ever see because they are 
really symptoms, right? So in medical school, we learn a, a lot about symptoms and trying to classify them into different diseases and what they might point to so that we can diagnose and treat, right? The, the medical model of disability. Something like fatigue, something like nausea, vomiting, pain, these things can be experienced by anyone and they can be for a short period of time, right? And people likely don't think twice about it. But for some people, when it's not short-lived and when there's not a treatment and when there's not an understanding of where that comes from, things get really messy really quickly because in medicine, there is an inherent bend towards we have to diagnose it in order to treat it. And if we can't do either of those things, then maybe it doesn't exist. And it's hard for me to say that, right? Because I'm a medical student and I don't want to blame, you know, medicine for something. I'm, I'm certainly, you know, thrilled to be in medicine. But you just have to, to go online and look up, you know, a few different patient portals or patient communities to see that there are hundreds and hundreds of people who have been basically written off by medicine because they we don't know how to help them, right? And so I use the term hidden, first of all, because I think it's really important for us to realize that these sorts of disabilities are not invisible in the sense that we can't see them. It's that you have to look to see them, right? You have to see the little grimace of someone in pain, the fact that someone who's, you know, has tr trouble balancing will often walk closer to the wall so that they can grab hold. The fact that someone with hearing loss often, you know, will, or who's hearing impaired or deaf will preferentially turn towards one side, you know, if they have better hearing in, a, in one of their ears. So these are things that, like being, you know, a really astute clinician, once you join the disability community and start getting to know more disabled people, you start becoming attuned to. But general society, unfortunately, does not recognize these things. And, and when we don't recognize them, we don't support them and we don't accommodate them, right? So within schools, within businesses, it's really hard to ask for accommodations or receive accommodations for something like fatigue, right? Oh, you're tired. I'm sorry to hear that. Do you want some coffee? Like that's not that's not what fatigue is, right? And when we talk about something like chronic fatigue syndrome, right? And and it's hard to know what the answer is there, right? Too often we say, "Oh, well, you can't work." Okay, let's, you know, let's get you on quote disability and you'll get paid and and the fact of the matter is many, many disabled people who are on disability want nothing more than to work, right? They they miss having that aspect of their lives. Not to say that the choice to go on disability isn't a valid one for some people, but it's about that choice. It's about, you know, being able to do with your life what what you want. And so I wrote this article in the context of, of COVID-19 because you know, as someone who kind of sort of looks disabled, but no one really knows what my thing is or, or what it's from or what causes it or what it does to me. And, you know, I do fine, but I look different. And what does that mean? 
I've had a really hard time explaining to people that, you know, me being short and me being a little funny shaped in the torso is because of scoliosis. And that scoliosis constricts my lungs. And that constriction of my lungs means that if I get sick with, you know, a respiratory infection, it will be harder for me to fight. That doesn't mean I'm immunocompromised, right? Because even within COVID and talking about risk, we often go to, we need to protect older adults and we need to protect the immunocompromised, right? That's what, you know, people say in their guidelines and on TV and whatever. And immunocompromised means something specific, right? We know what that means in medicine, right? You're you're more likely to catch infections. You're more likely to transmit infections because of a deficiency in your immune system or an insult, you know, from something like chemotherapy. I am at the same risk of getting an infection as someone, you know, as anyone else without an immune compromise. But it's what happens then if I get that. And so these are two different kinds of risks, right? Because I... I'm not a risk to the patients that I go and see, but when I'm hanging out with my friends or going for a walk, I need everyone around me to be wearing masks, if not more, to be keeping their distance, to, I can't, you know, do anything inside, even if it's, you know, just a couple of people, you know, these, all these things we've been talking about have in in COVID in in the world at large have really started to affect me in ways that my disability never used to, right? I used to deal with for the last few years, right? The fact that I'm short and so I need to be able to reach things. And that was basically the main symptom that I still felt from my disability, right? As a kid, obviously there were there were tons of things. I was, you know, a wheelchair user for an, a while. There was a lot of pain, you know, et cetera. But this is what I mean about context, right? Now when COVID-19 happened and I had to start thinking about this risk, trying to explain that risk when people don't understand it is really hard. And even the effort to try to call attention to that if someone is not already thinking about it is even harder, right? And so that's why I wrote this article because we need to become aware of the spectrum of disabilities that's all around us so that the people who are disabled themselves don't have to do as much teaching. When we're going on rounds in the hospital, we shouldn't just by default say sprint, you know, sprint up the stairs to the next floor because there can be someone with, you know, Charcot-Marie Tooth who might not look disabled, but if they splint up three flights of stairs, they're gonna get really weak and you know can can fall and have an accident. And and we don't want to stigmatize them by making them say that out loud where they might not want to to explain why they can't run up the stairs or why they're gonna take the elevator. And so then we get into you know these complex complex interpersonal and societal relationships where we start making value judgments. You know, we tell someone, well, it's healthy to run up the stairs. Well, it's healthy to run up the stairs for some people. It's not healthy to fall on your head, right? Like there are, there are, we all have different bodies. We all have different minds. And so I, I decided to use the term hidden um, because it's been 
talked about more and more within the disability community that, you know, the onus has to be on society to start looking. And when we call it invisible, we make it okay not to look. So when we start from this place then of this is a societal problem, I also will note that you identify some very striking examples of what can happen inside a hospital when we're making rounds. Not that it can't happen anywhere else, but obviously that example resonates. So then let's get to that mindset of how do we start to make this better? How do we start to improve? How do we build a toolbox to at least begin to talk about it? Where are the places you would like to see us? And when I say us, I mean our profession, our shared profession. And maybe let's just take it into the hospital. Let's just start there. When we're rounding in the hospital together, where are the places you would like to see us begin to move on the journey of progress? Oh, this is, I mean, this is uh, the million dollar question, right? So it's I, a million dollar question for you. <laughs> so I think, so I think all the changes we have to make, right? I can run through like a really quick list, right? Like we need to check that the doors that are supposed to be, you know, accessible actually are. We need to make sure that there's Braille signage on all the, you know, signs in the hallways and all the room doors. We need to make sure that our electronic medical records are accessible if somebody is is vision impaired and needs to increase the font or if they are, you know, they need to use a screen reader that, you know, reads it out loud to them. We need to, you know, know how to access sign language. We need to know when the phone rings and we hear a click that that's actually someone trying to use adaptive technology to make a phone call. And if we just hang up on them, then we're later going to say, well, we don't need to do the, you know, X because we don't have any to save any deaf patients. Well, no, you're just hanging up on all your deaf patients before they have a chance to get connected. Right. So like all of these, there are all of these things and I can keep on going, but they all come back to, do we understand the spectrum of disabilities that exist, what those disabilities are like, and what barriers exist to keep disabled people out of these spaces or to make their experience worse in the space. So then let me ask you the question in a different way. Yeah. What does leadership in this work look like? Acknowledging that there is probably a, a, a lengthy list of boxes we need to check to make sure the work is being done right. What does leadership in the space look like? Couple of key things. I think one, support and amplify the voices of disabled leaders in medicine who have been doing this work, especially those with uh, other marginalized or minoritized identities. Gather the data, right? When every form in, in school, in clinical trials, in employment, that asks about race and gender and socioeconomic status. I can't remember the last time that I saw, do you identify as disabled on one of those forms, right? So if we're not asking it, we're not gonna know it's there. It means that our spaces within academia need to be talking about this when we talk about social determinants of health, when we talk about oppression. Right? Because the intersection of racism and ableism is has a has a long, long history. And 
it's going to be really hard to to fully get rid of one without getting rid of the other. You know, just to call out an example, not that not that disability doesn't intersect with other identities, but but the intersection of blackness and disability, especially when we start thinking about prisons and about our unhoused population, is is something we are not doing anywhere near enough at. And it means that kind of to sum up that people just need to talk about disability. We dance around the edges so often. That must be exhausting. I agree with you. I I I'm, I probably do it myself because that's just we're so acculturated to that. It must be really exhausting being on the other side of it. It is, and I and I I definitely have had times over the last year or so where I have gotten incredibly frustrated. Yeah. But I also I derive so much joy and 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 pleasure from from doing this work with the people that that I you know am with because the community is is a fantastic one and we have also I mean I'll I try to I try to give credit where credit is due and even in the last year or two I have seen that so many more people are are beginning to understand this when I talk about it right I used to get a lot of blank stares yeah now I get, oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, you're right. So that maybe, hopefully go, that's indicative of the needle moving just a little bit. Yeah. Now we need to go the next step of right. me walking into a room and hearing someone else talking about it. Right. Like right. that's the, that's kind of the goal. There's another term that I would like to ask for your insight around because I think I understand it, but I'm not totally sure. My understanding definitely gets to the point where it's something that I think we want to be mindful of, if not try to avoid entirely. And that's the concept, especially on social media, of ableism. But I think it would be helpful just, again, making sure that we're not assuming knowledge or making sure that we have shared understanding give us give us your understanding of what that term and and that sort of motif of ableism means absolutely so this is this is also a hard question and i i do not presume to have you know definitive knowledge or, or control of the definition sure the way that i think about ableism is is i think of it as the systems that we have built in our world that are built by and for abled people, right? So people without disabilities of the body or mind. And that's important because it means two things. It means one, that that the barriers are there. We don't put alt text on our images online. We don't have ramps in our buildings or elevators. We, you know, don't caption our lectures and videos, all that sort of stuff. And then it also means that when we say things, whether in writing and social media and conversation, that act as if disabled people aren't there, right? So that means making jokes about a patient or saying something about a patient's, uh, you know, poor outcome, you know, likely poor outcome without recognizing that one of the students or residents or doctors you're talking to could have that same likelihood of poor outcome, right? So it's 
within medicine, it's this belief that, well, if we're in medicine, everyone around us must be abled. And the more you start to look at it, the more you start to think about it, and this happens for me all the time, I start seeing it in places I never, ever would before, right? Like, I was talking to a friend just last night that, um, who's an autistic med student, and she was saying that she did a, an OSCE, you know, an observed, you know, standardized clinical oh, exam. Man. Patient, right? <laughs> yeah, you just and, took me back. <laughs> and yeah, one of the things on, on her evaluation was doesn't make eye contact, right? We have this, this inherent assumption that making eye contact is part of being a good physician and providing good patient care, right? For someone who's autistic, that can be hard. And for a patient who's autistic, that can be hard. And so when we make that the standard, we're making it harder for both autistic patients and autistic physicians when we don't need to be, right? Why why do we need to be granular right, like that, right? Why can't it just be about we need to create really good spaces to care for our patients in whatever way that means. For some patients, that's going to be eye contact. For some patients, that's going to be, please do not force eye contact upon them, right? So a level of sophistication that would then allow for a more dynamic, sensitive interaction. Exactly. And and I, I brought that example up because it's, you know, what I just, you know, it was last night. But I think that there are so many examples. I mean, I got a, I got a text from a friend at another medical school, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago that she was in ethics class and her professor said something like, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, you know, if I, if I had to be wheelchair bound, I would kill myself. Right. And so then, then we look at why there are very few doctors who use wheelchairs. First of all, like wheelchair bound is so derogatory. And then this assumption that being a wheelchair user is is something bad, something that, you know, you no one would want, right? I think what we need to get to is I would if I was a wheelchair user, I would hate to have the people around me not recognize what things I needed to make my life you know, to give me the same equity in life as as other people, right? And there are there are dozens and dozens of examples of this. I could go on and on, but I think that that ableism is this is three parts to sum up: one, the belief that being disabled is bad; two, the fact that our society and our systems are built for people without disabilities, and then three, that when we're talking about these things we sort of have a tendency to gaslight disabled people and say, well, you know, you're overreacting or that's not what I meant, or it was a joke or whatever else we say to excuse away the fact that our society, our world is not built for disabled people, both in our interactions and our spaces. And it's not enough to just say, oh, sorry, if that was offensive, right? It's you have to start thinking about what that means before you say it. And this isn't, 
This isn't politically correct stuff. This isn't cancel culture. This isn't any of that. Those things are words that have been created by people who don't like thinking about other people's emotions to excuse away their own lack of thinking about those emotions, right? These things matter because they matter to someone. And if they matter to someone, they should matter to you too. I think that that's a great way to call to action around this. And I think what I'm taking away from this is our first call to action is for us just to understand the words that we do see flying around and that sometimes trend on social media and are making their way into public discourse that we at least have a beginning of shared understanding of what they mean. And then for those of us who work in healthcare to, uh, again, understand what they mean in the context of providing care and being part of a team and leading teams and recruiting. It's it's going to be a, a lengthy and long challenge because we have multiple generations of physicians and healthcare professionals that have, I might even think at best, a limited or moderate amount of education around this, but most probably have very little to none. And that is a sturdy challenge for us as we go forward. Yeah. And I... On a, on a sort of positive note, I think that a lot of this, the groundwork is already there for. Right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. The really, really good clinicians, really good people yeah. already know that understanding the context of someone's life is important. They already know that getting at what is troubling someone is important and working to alleviate those things. So- so I think there are a lot of people who are are helping and are providing good care to disabled patients and to their disabled colleagues without knowing it. What I think is important to talk about this is because it's not an isolated incident, right? So in order to get at the systemic change, we need to go from this is the really nice thing I do for my patient who's in a wheelchair to, well, what are we missing? And there's never, ever been a more important time for us to be talking about this than right now because, you know, health is quite literally on the line in this election, right? And 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 I bring up ableism not to make any, you know, political statements, but because whenever we're talking about a candidate or about a policy, just as it's not enough to say, oh, that was meant as a joke, it's also not enough to say, oh, you know, this is really helpful for some, you know, we're sorry that it leaves out disabled people. But we, we can't, we cannot keep writing off disabled people, what disabled people need, what things are going to be really harmful to disabled people. It's if we want to move towards a more just, a more equitable, a better world for everyone, we have to talk about this. And and it's not selfish. A, a more accessible world, it has been shown in the research, is better for everyone. When we start putting elevators into buildings, people who are fully able-bodied still really appreciate that when their arms are full of groceries, right? People who are trying to watch 
a continuing medical education, you know, credit on the subway, you know, when we used to take the subway, really appreciate if there are captions on that, if it's hard to hear, you know, without, without any hearing impairment, right? So accessibility is better for everyone. And, and I just wish that people would start seeing that rather than, as you put it, taking that defensive stance of, well, we'll provide this if, you know, we, you reach out or, right. well, you know, we're not sure how many people it would help. I think that you've provided the right call to action with that as well. And I will also say, and one of the things that I've really enjoyed and learned a great deal from is you also put the information out there for us to learn from and get better. We're going to have a variety of Twitter threads and other links that you've created that'll be in our show notes of how to use alt text, which I learned from you, uh, and, and a variety of other really powerful tools. Those will all be in the show notes, though. And where else, though, do you like to direct people who want to learn more about this? And where do people find you if they want to follow you? Yeah, so I do most of my disability advocacy work on Twitter. It's been such a fun community to become a part of both, you know, in the medicine and, and diagnostic reasoning and, and science world and, and mostly in, in, in disability, which is what I post about. I'm at underscore Harry Paul underscore. And I, I think that more than just, you know, me, there's sort of a, a two part thing, right? Look up, read about, visit the websites, the Twitter handles, the the books and 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 TV and and movies about and by disabled people. Like that's the first thing, right? Read our actual words, just like with any other movement in in equity or social justice, right? Listen to the people actually affected by it. Especially within disability, you will find that there are many people who talk about disability who have no idea what they are talking about because they are not disabled themselves, right? So they 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 make these movements to say, you know, things like, don't let your disability define you. What if your disability does define you, right? Why not work to make that define you in a good way? Why not work to recognize that it is defined for you by the society we live in than to try to erase it by saying, don't let it define you, you know? Yeah, and so yeah. I think I think be very wary when you read or listen to things about disability and, and think about what is the angle of the person who's saying those things. And then beyond sort of that, you know, reading homework, like everyone listening or reading this show after knows disabled people. I guarantee it. 100%. But if you don't talk to them about it, if you don't make your own existence one that seems open to, to hear from those people, you're not going to know it. And so in your own lives, make space to talk about that and you will learn a tremendous amount. Here's the thing I like about you being high vis though too. And like you said, people who have listened to this or read it, guarantee they know someone yeah because they know you now and i think that that's exciting and so obviously I, I i've learned a tremendous amount from you i found you through twitter i would encourage everyone else to access the stuff that you're doing and the people that your thread directs us to as well because look we are starting out on this road it is going to take some time but we all know someone now and i think for a lot of those people the first one that might come to mind is you and i would submit that that is great it's a challenge 
challenge, but it's great. And I'm grateful to you that you came on the show to talk about it, that you are as open and transparent with your writing and with your work on social media as you are down the road we'll have you back and we can reconvene and see where progress has been made and see what impacts policy making and elections are having on this work but harry thank you very much i really enjoyed this it's been an absolute pleasure i love the show great to talk to you as always and and thanks everyone for tuning in and don't hesitate to reach out if there's any questions i can answer or if you just want to chat i i I love talking to people I can confirm he, you are available and you are helpful for all those things, man. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Take care. My thanks once again to Harry for joining us on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. And definitely check out the links that he has shared with us. They're in the show notes. Please take a look. Some great opportunities for learning. And definitely check out his article in Stat News, which is also linked in the show notes. Thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Learn more about Creighton's executive MBA and executive fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. Thanks to you so much for listening to this episode as well. Really appreciate you taking the time. We will be back soon with more great content. In the meantime, make sure to wash your hands, wear your mask, maintain physical distancing, Get registered, make your voting plan, and get ready to vote or vote early if you have the opportunity. We will see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.